Hi, and welcome to Bloody Good Reads. I'm your host, Mike Goddard. You will know me from the Snakebite Horrorcast, snakebitehorror.co.uk, and the Franchise Players Podcast. And today we're joined by another amazing guest from over in America, and I'd like to introduce him to the podcast. It is Eric Gennard. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Mark. It's a, a pleasure and an honor to be on on your podcast. I definitely appreciate your time and appreciate the chance to to chat with you. Uh, another horror fan. Always good to discuss current topics with like-minded ilk. It is very nice. <laughs> and, and, and horror is a, is, a, is a thing you can say a lot about nowadays. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it has a, a little bit more real-world applications. Uh, I still prefer the fiction side of it. To think of it this way, you know, we, we've, we've been fans of horrors for long enough to know how to deal with a zombie apocalypse, so we can deal with this. It's fine. Look, look, Dan's easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just uh, lock ourselves up in the, in the house and uh, do our thing and not step out. Exactly, exactly. And we have to, you know, <laughs> we have to go out. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure we uh, stay safe. <laughs> um, so... On the podcast, what we like to do here is uh, meet authors and talk to authors uh, about their work, about their career. And um, basically, I will start like I always start. How did you get into horror? Well, I gosh, I feel like I, I've, I've always had an, an interest in reading horror from, from childhood. I think it started off with more of, of reading mythology and fairy tales, which are truly very they're very horrific at their basis mm. um you know in the earliest readings you read ride riding hood and the, the brothers grim there it deals with monsters and it deals with fears but from them i just it developed it was a sense of excitement and i always like to say my my favorite horror tends to still be along those lines in that there is something very ominous and very evil that the main character the protagonist encounters Yet generally, by the end, by the climax, the protagonist prevails. In most good horror, terrible, terrible things happen to the the main character, but they tend to overcome these challenges, which, I mean, that lends itself, I mean, very much so to, you know, adventure tales, to, you know, basically that it's almost uplifting to me that these barriers that are thrown in, in front of characters that, you know, you even though they, they may be terrible things and supernatural things, nevertheless, they find ways, whether it's through their wits, whether it's through weapons, training, education, teamwork, you know, they find ways to, to best the, the monster or the, or the fear by its end. And I feel that that just naturally transitioned in, into my, you know, into books that I read, um, topics that I began to enjoy writing about, you know, movies and, and television shows. I, I just hmm. tend to be attracted a, a little bit more towards towards the the dark. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why we're here. And that's why we're here. <laughs> yeah, all that. Lots of Twilight Zone. Oh, definitely. <laughs> See, a lot of people um, normally say Twilight Zone. We didn't really have it that much over here in the UK. Um, not even when I was growing up sadly um getting more nowadays we've got creep show over on shutter and, and that kind of thing but uh you're very lucky over in america you had more 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 horror to indulge than we did over here <laughs> yeah i feel that you're growing up before the internet 
um, you know, you were you were kind of stuck with just regular television, and there was not mm. a lot of selection. So, you know, in, in the middle of the afternoon, if you wanted to, to turn on a television show, you had maybe the news, maybe mm -hmm. a soap opera, and then if you're lucky, there would be some sort of pop culture kind of enjoyable show. And the Twilight Zone was syndicated, so I think that's why it's it's a lot of people drawn it for influences simply by the mere fact that. It was played for years and years and years. Over the decade, in the middle of the afternoon, you could turn on a good Twilight Zone episode, and and really, um, you know, I think that's people just grew to enjoy it as part of their um, developmental experience. So, your new your, your latest novels come out recently, and I know that you've done a lot of short stories fi fiction. Um, but let's start from the start because I'm looking through your bibliography and you've done a lot of academic works before you started kind of getting into the horror yeah that's yeah that's definitely correct i i'll say that i've i i work at i'm i'm also um among besides my normal day job i'm a technical writer um for the power mm. company up here in southern california and then i'm um, also an adjunct professor I'm teaching that subject matter, and I've always enjoyed uh, college. My my te my wife is a, a professor as well. Um, I've gone through multiple schools, and in between jobs, I you know this is back 10, 10 years ago or, or so. I I thought I could make a, a bit of side money by perhaps you know writing academic articles and sharing them on onto Yahoo, and Yahoo doesn't doesn't do this anymore. But they're paying. Uh, uh, royalties based based on page hits for uh, material. So I, I started to go through, and I you know I would I would start to write these papers that were generally topics I had explored in in school and in colleges, and it was all rather drab and, and dull. So you know social security issues. Um, I enjoy studying nature, so I started to get into a lot a lot of uh, naturalist writing about uh, environmental sciences and ecological mm. issues. And yeah, of course it never went anywhere. And, and ultimately I just, I grew to not enjoy it because it was more of, of a job, just, just writing these little, these briefs and mm. essays, but it really, it helped to spur me back into creative writing, which is okay. something that I, I had enjoyed as a child growing up. That was, mm. I, there was, there was a lot of escapism through reading, through comic books, through, through novels, books, writing. Um, but by the time I went to college, I was kind of had it in my head. My, my parents had trained me that I needed to follow business pursuits and I needed to be a very serious minded individual where horror had no place in one's life. <laughs> Go, going through those academic um, articles, it was, it kind of got me back into the habit of, of free writing again. Yeah. And I started to understand, um, how individuals went about blogging and developing content for websites. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, it, and it, I, I look at it as kind of the, it was kind of a doorway that it gave me an, an outlet, an outlet for creative writing, because otherwise, I very well may have thought I'd like to write a story or two again, but I wouldn't have known what to do with it. And that's for aspiring writers. That's really half of the battle is mm. you, anybody can put words down on paper, but it's, it's, it's trying to understand the, the publishing side, the distribution side, websites, where to send work, what to do with it. It's, 
man, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of work. It's a lot of study that that comes from experience. Um, you know, unless you have a mentor or somebody to kind of show you the ropes, but I, I feel I just, I, I learned just by muddling my way through. Yeah. And that's not a bad way. <laughs> and you've done quite well for yourself. I mean, you know, you, you have your own company, uh, publishing company and, you know, you've done a lot of to kind of work with, um, the horror writers association. So, you know, you've done quite well for yourself for muddling through. It's not too bad. <laughs> uh, I, think, you know, I, I definitely appreciate that. I, I, I feel like I could I could have done worse, that's for sure. <laughs> so was it more short fiction you went into first? Absolutely. Yes. I, I've loved short fiction. My my whole life I, I I've always been drawn to short short stories and I mm. still am today. And I always I, I always like to argue that reading short stories, you can read multiple short stories in the time that you can read a novel. And a novel mm. I mean, there's that that tends to be the more popular format because it really gives you a chance to explore an, an individual's life and the, their experiences. But I've always been more of an ideas person. I love to hear about ideas and people's experiences in, in a very quick amount of time. And, you know, in the time it takes somebody to read a novel, you could go through 15, 20 different short stories. And each of those short stories is about a different individual. Each of those short, short stories can have a different voice. They can speak mm. to different experiences. They can experiment. They can expand your mind in so many different ways. And, you know, a short story, you don't like it. It's only been a, you know, it's only taken up 15, 20 minutes of your time. Maybe it doesn't appeal to you. But it, it, at, least, it at least just kind of o- opens your mind to, to different of ways of storytelling and um, I've, just, I've just always been drawn to that. I think some, a lot of my earliest um, readings when I was a child, I had a lot of um, o. Hen- the author O. Henry. His stories spoke to me, and uh, Rudyard Kipling um, was another one I, I had. And in addition, I'll kind of go back to a, fairy, fairy, a lot of fairy tales that I, I particularly enjoyed. So, mm. yeah, to this day, my, my favorite form of writing, I love reading in anthologies, and I, I love reading single author collections. Um, naturally, I love novels as well. It's it's just kind of kind of uh, different, you know, diff- different lines. When when there's an author that you can trust, and you just love what they write, you know, naturally the novel is the way to go because then you just it's it's a much more intimate um, affair, and mm. and you can really you know take let that author take you along along their path. Yeah, because I know. Um... We, the first episode we did on the podcast was with Nathan Robinson, um, good friend of mine. We used to review for the for the website, but he started right, his short right. fiction, and he's always said that he's kind of that's that's what got him into it in the first place as well. So it's nice to kind of have another author on here who also has a love for short fiction. We we tried to put, push short fiction on the website years ago when we first started. Um, unfortunately, we uh, we didn't kind of we stopped doing book reviews for a while because of a. Uh, time and and that kind of thing but um you know i i love a nice good nice little short story and you know i i had you know the grim fairy tales and all all them kind of things as well growing up so it's uh i do like a bit of short fiction <laughs> i like short films as well though that's thing the short films are kind of um one of the things that i will always kind of chan champion on their podcast as well um like lights out the film lights out the short short film inspired the movie was much better than what the <laughs> movie was yeah anyway <laughs> yeah, so good. 
let's segue into because I, mean, I will always explain this in a podcast, but if people haven't listened before, um, what we do on the podcast is get each guest to rip off a BBC radio show, which most people probably haven't heard of. Um, <laughs> uh, basically, I, bring, I a, bring along. Anyways, what are you saying? <laughs> this is Desert Island Discs, <laughs> classic ah. show from, uh, from from many many years. Um, we just don't try and admit that we're ripping it off. But um, basically, we get our guests to bring along free books. They're bloody good reads that they love and want to share their love of it to the audience that are listening. So, what is your first bloody good read? All right. And first, I'd like to mention what a challenge that is, is to just pick three <laughs> books. I, I, I feel like I, 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 John, I, I had um, I John Everson on uh, the last episode, just just, just posted now. Um, and he was cheeky and picked four. So you know, people are cheating at the moment, which is, which is good. So hopefully you stuck oh. to the free book rule. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna follow his footsteps. I'm gonna one up him and go to five. It's <laughs> <laughs> the American uh, office that the being bad. <laughs> <laughs> at, least, at least his runners up. The first novel I I I picked. Oh, this is it's called Boys Life by American author Robert R. McCammon. This particular book, I pr- I only first read this about eight or nine years ago. I'm I'm gonna say, maybe mm. even less, seven, seven years ago. But the the whole backstory of this particular novel is the 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 coming of age experiences of a twelve year old son, and much of it has to do with his relationship with his father. Mm-hmm. I have a young son coincidentally now is 12 but back when i read this he was you know three three or four years old and this book it made me weep and i i say that in a good way that although this book is categorized as horror and it has many many horrific elements through through here it is such a beautifully immaculately constructed um, storyline of a child of of looking at the world through a child's eyes hmm. so a lot of the things that happen are to him it has to do with the magic of childhood so whereas you know to to a boy his bicycle is a is a an avenue of freedom so that it takes a literal sense in the book that the bicycle can fly for him and these are, and the, it's sort of the magical, it's sort of the magic that we lose as adults. So for as adults, they may not see the things that are happening to the the children around them. But to a child, there are there are monsters in the shadows, and there are the, the things that they see and the way that they interpret these these things. It's just it's different, and there's just that that certain aura of joy and terror and sorrow and all of the emotions that are just multiplied in our youth. So that's the first novel that I want to mention again, uh, Robert McCammon. Um, it was written in about 1991, I believe. It also mm-hmm. dealt um, with a number of social um, changes at the time. The, the story takes place in the 1960s in the American South. So there's a lot of a uh, racial injustice um, discussions um, segregations between um, white and blacks, 
and how that affects the main character and how that affects the people he sees around them in, in the towns. So even though this book is, gosh, almost 30 years old, it's still, it's so relevant today. Oh, and again, it is just such a beautiful, beautiful book. And I think that's probably enough, enough that, that I, I've spoken to, <laughs> but I highly recommend it. Um, and, and, and I'll leave it at that. You know, I don't, I don't believe I actually went into the plot line much. <laughs> That's <laughs> not a problem. I just keep it kind, kind, kind of my, my reaction to it. <laughs> not said. So let's go on to Dark Moon books. So All right. what made you kind of want to get into the book publishing side of things? Because a lot of the books you have there are more kind of short fiction. So obviously it plays off for your, your love of short fiction and kind of... So what was it that kind of led you on to become a book publisher? Oh, well, it's it's another journey that ties into me um, originally not, not knowing anything about writing or, or publishing or marketing or, or the such, but just wanting to be part of something that I found such joy in. Hmm. And so... Um, the very first anthology that I edited was called Dark Tales of Lost Civilizations. It was an anthology with that had themes of not only horror, but themes of exploration, themes of archaeology and science, kind of looking at, at our past and, you know, uncovering, you know, horrible omens or, you know, monsters or, you know, diff different things of relics. I because I've loved short stories all my life and I, and I love anthologies and that's how I've always come. That's how I have always come upon the authors that I enjoy reading or through the short stories of anthologies. I wanted to publish an anthology. I didn't know anybody in the industry. I didn't know how to publish an anthology, but I figured I was just going to look at all of my anthologies and, and kind of model them as far as editing and structuring and, it came down to, I then realized that I did not have an actual publisher to publish that anthology. So I started talking to indie publishers, which naturally a publisher would say, I have no idea who you are, oh stranger that has come knocking at my door. <laughs> no editing credits or author credits. And then they would also say they would like to see some of the authors and some of the stories that I would want to include in the anthology, which would lead as kind of a chicken and egg effect that I would have to go try to find authors that would want to write a story for me, but then I wouldn't have a publisher. And so they wouldn't trust me to find a publisher. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I happened to come across this small press called dark moon books. And I still just, I still give the highest of praise to its, its original owner named him Stan Swanson. And he was, again, I, I just, I was just blindly emailed out to him my idea and I must have blindly emailed to 50 other publishers. And if, if they even bothered to respond to me, it was always with a flat no. Mm. But um, Stan Swanson gave me a chance. He he allowed me to uh, put together this anthology. I, I financed it. I did all the editing. I, I put it all together. So essentially, I, I delivered to him a you know, complete package. Mm. But he was the actual publisher because I didn't, I didn't know how to do publishing. I had no idea how to how to actually put a book into print and, you know, distribute and make it for sale. So that was about a uh, 2012 um, or so. And I, and I did another anthology thereafter with them. I follow up anthology titled after death. And I also wrote a couple of short stories for dark moon books because he had, 
he had not only the publishing side for books, he was also doing a magazine called um, Dark Moon Digest that was coming out every two months. He also separately had a separate e-magazine, so it was a nice little empire that he built for himself. But unfortunately, over, over the course of a couple of years, he had some health um, declining issues, and he, he put his press on hold, um, and eventually nothing was done with it. The website was hacked by you know, spam, spams from another country, um, and it just, everything kind of dropped off onto the decline. So a, a few years ago, I, I was thinking about all of these little passion projects that I had that once again, I was going to need to try to find a, a publisher to publish with. And I, and I felt at that point there was a, a number I had, I had more options because I had a background of work and, you know, I had, I had enough connections that I could mm. go elsewhere, but doing those and those initial anthologies, they, it gave me the, the education and the experience of understanding that not only what writing is, but looking at writing from the eyes of an editor. So looking at your store from the eyes of an editor is completely different experience than as an author. Mm. And then also looking at writing from the eyes of a marketer, which again, that's a completely different experience and looking at a project through the eyes of a publisher. And each of these is, you know, there's that old saying, you have to wear a lot of hats. Mm. You know, each hat represents you know, a different individual and the duties and roles and responsibilities of that individual. And I thought I would really like to learn more about the publishing side. And the way to do that would be to create my own press. Um, I happened to notice that uh, Dark Moon Books itself was, was on the decline. So I, I reached out to the um, former founder and we had negotiated a deal. So I bought out the name mm -hmm. of the company. Um, and then Dark Moon Digest was sold off to another individual. Um, one of my, my friends at the time, Max Booth III, and uh, his his wife Lori Michelle they run Dark Moon Digest, which mm -hmm. which was also part of Dark Moon Books. So I, I took the website, I completely rebranded it, I released the rights of all of the former books back to their authors, which uh, a lot of them were more of you know vampire and zombie um, books, which didn't mm -hmm. quite interest the, the direction I wanted to take this press, and I, I started it from the ground up. But I had a name that had some some decent recognition you know, a decade ago. And, and personally, I, I I like things in history. And personally, the name of Dark Moon Books just meant so much to me because that was my um, initial experience into publishing. And, mm -hmm. and I thought I, I didn't want to see the name die off. I wanted to, to um, keep it going. So I rebuilt out the new website. And I've just been developing these kind of strange books that I like to have control over them that I could kind of see them done the, the way that, that I envision. So I don't have to, I don't want to say I don't have to compromise my vision because I have our <laughs> such artistic integrity. But uh, again, at the same time, it's just, it's given me that chance to really, you know, understand kind of some of the algorithms of, of Amazon and to understand the, the distribution channels. Um, and, and it's, again, it's, it's very, it's incredibly time consuming and, and very frustrating, but it's it's also it's it's something I have passion for. So I probably, I probably a very long-winded uh, response no, no. on the entire history. <laughs> no, it's nice to know kind of the history behind it. It's uh it's intriguing to me. It's good to kind of see an old company be reborn into into a vision that obviously you got a lot of passion for it. So it's nice to hear. So 
what was your aim with Dark Moon? Was it more to try and get more, more kind of just the shorter fiction collections? Would you kind of aim in four, four novels or the original? When I first, when I first decided to branch off and start my own publisher, it was initially and purely to do my primer series, hmm. where I have a ser- a small series of books, where each book is an individual volume exploring the short fiction writing of authors whom I personally look upon as modern masters mm. of, of that form. Somebody that generations to come, they can look back and say, you know, this was an author who meant somebody in, in that time. Um, and this particular project, it's, it's, it, to me, it's unique. And, and I, and I know there are different variations of it, of it elsewhere. But it's such a kind of a strange project that it, it didn't fit with some of the other um, publishers that I had talked to. And I thought, you know, this is something that I think it has a great deal of meaning. And I also look at it as a very fluid process that I may want to change how, how I have how I have these books. And, and I don't want to be beholden to a publisher with contracts. I don't want to have these, you know, certain expectations of somebody above me telling me what what I do, what I would need to do, or or would need to change. So, it it really taking over Dark Moon Books was for my primer series exploring mm-hmm. dark short fiction, and simultaneously it also gave me a, a chance to um, publish some of my my other anthology ideas, which have also been kind of labors of love and. Some of them a little bit more of strange ideas, mixing academic commentary and nonfiction essays and, and artwork all along with, with the fiction, which it's it's meant as as pairings. You know, I gotta have a good wine and a good food. <laughs> I, I kind of mix different elements that I that I hope will complement the short fiction, which the short fiction is always the focus. Of these um, these books that I put out, I see you've done a primer series on Ramsey Campbell, who is a legend, absolute legend. Yes, yes, he's he's actually that's the one I'm currently working on, mm. so which I I expect to have that volume released probably in about February, so in about in about five more months. He he's the sixth volume in the series, and yeah, what an honor, an honor to to be able to work with Ramsey. Yeah, I can. I can imagine. I mean, I'd, I'd love to get him on the podcast at some point. But you know, the grin, in, grin of the dark was a brilliant book. It's one of the ones that I read when I was kind of getting, getting into more uh, obscure horror. So it's. Uh, I'm intrigued to see your primer in that one. I'll be looking forward to reading that when it comes out. My goal was to essentially create a library of these books mm. that not just that's not just a focus of any one individual, but by their by their aggregate, you'll you will see um, this speaks to what the authors were doing in the in the '90s and the 2000s and, and the 2010s. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of wanted this to be a, a snapshot of what the horror genre is, glo- essentially globally. But you know, I, I I look for authors that are writing um, short short horror, not just in different nations, but also they're different. They have different styles, and you know, Ramsey has such a very subtle quiet kind of a slow moving very thoughtful style to to his writing mm. that stands out so your second choice we'll segue into that one now <laughs> so what is your second bloody good read all right 
I'm gonna I'm gonna list my my second choice novel. Um, it's a novel called Geek Love by author Catherine Dunn. I read Geek Love. I was probably in my mid twenties, and I was uh, was not doing very much fiction reading at the time. It was mostly leadership books and you know, academic books and how to how to succeed in the world and become your own man type of nonfiction books and memoirs. So I, I happened to pick up Geek Love, and it it was such such an amazing, shockingly amazing book for for its imagination. It's basically it's a book about a carnival uh, freak show, and that's it's to say it bluntly, it's a freak it's a freak show by its own creation. It's a traveling carnival. And the, it's a husband and wife that own the carnival, and it and it has some financial failures and some problems, and they decide they are going to create their own freak show by their own children. And so during the the '60s and the '70s, they started experimenting with a lot of uh, psychedelic drugs, as well as caustic chemicals and radiation. And they turned it into a bit of a science experiment. So each of their children was purposefully born deformed, but also in their eyes unique. So each of their children are, are a unique blossoming flower that outwardly has these horrible deformities, but inwardly inwardly represents some element of the family. So as you can imagine, by its very nature, it's just a completely screwed up um, family of, of this of the parents' creation, and it 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 was meant again financially just just for their gain, and and to see the continuance of of this um, carnival as they traveled around. But each each of these children then has their own story. Each of these children, it's their growing up experiences in this horrible environment, and and how they are changed by by their environment. And a lot of the story has to deal with no matter how screwed up the world is around you, no matter ho how horrible your circumstances are, that family comes first. And they have this strange family love and family bonding because they are all outwardly freakish. There's very little opportunity to do anything else but of this prison of, of their own making. Hmm. So the story is actually told in three different um, back and forth linear um, time time loops. So you have the story of the mother and father as they are trying to do as they are trying to found their carnival their their freak show carnival, and how they're experimenting with the drugs and really it's a very it's very deep and insightful as they're talking about their their own personal twisted hopes and dreams, and then you also have the main part of the novel which takes place in in. The main character's um, current era, which I believe was in the in the '90s or so, and it's it's a woman who is an albino hunchback dwarf. Right. So she's the most level-headed in the family, and so right. she's kind of the one who who keeps the other members of the family together, and and voices the narration of their occurrences as the as this carnival travels around the state and people jeer at them and insult them or love them or make business dealings and every place they go it's kind of a, a different story 
and then the t- and then the book is also told in the last year of of her life which in that era it was set in the modern time of the book's publication where it turns out she has had a daughter and but her daughter does not know the backstory of her own life because she had been given up for adoption mm. so it turns out the whole book is kind of written as a diary to give to the daughter so that she would understand who she was mm. and she would be able to make appropriate it was at the, it was at the crux of the, of these pivotal um, life decisions of the daughter that she need that she had to make and she was being led away by other other influences so her her unknown this unknown mother wanted to present the book to her kind of giving her the the backstory of, of the family and where she had come from but again it's just such it is such a strange and beautifully moving and it's hard to say just how how beautiful the the book is when when it's just ripe with this horrific, horrific and tragic backstory and foundation. But a lot of it has to deal with kind of coming to accept who you are and, and being the, the best person that you can. Mm. And I'll just leave it with the, the youngest, the youngest child in the family has telekinetic powers. So it's, it's more, it almost becomes more of this um, super mutant yeah. villain that, that, ultimately is like the most powerful member of the family but then the most the most cruel and the ultimate ultimate downfall that is going on my list oh. <laughs> definitely going on yeah. my list that one that's that yep geek, geek love by by Catherine dunn um unfortunately the author i i'm not mistaken she passed away two years ago um i don't think she ever wrote anything else besides mm. this novel she had she had done a couple of short stories and she had been in the process of writing another book and in an interview she had discussed how hard it was for her to write mm. because she was such a, a she took such care for her craft and in individual passages that she could agonize over individual words for weeks at a time and so unfortunately there's just man i, I would i would have loved to have read other works but uh yeah it's, it's a it, it's, it's a rare jewel i will i will say People do find it hard, though. I mean, I, that's kind of the reason why I stopped writing myself. But, um, you know, you can be overcritical of your work. And a lot of people have said to me in the past, it's like, just, you just have to hit that button, send it, and then hope for the yes. best. <laughs> um, ah, absolutely true. I, I, I suffer that as well. And I've suffered that in the past. And, you know, some some days are, are like that. But it's it's a very... It's, it's kind of this mental conscious hurdle that you have to make a decision that you're going to do your best that you can edit, clean it up, stop it, drop it off, do some, start on something else. Don't, don't dwell on it for too long or you'll drive yourself insane. And you don't want that. <laughs> There's nothing in things in this world to make you insane. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so let's go on to some of your uh, more recent work. So your first published collection or i might be wrong with this one was that which grows wild yeah it was a an amazing experience and i i've i've read cemetery dance magazines for for many years and they are an incredible um publisher and they they've done Mm. so much for the genre it was it was really a wonderful opportunity to be able to publish my my collection and uh you are right it was my debut collection so I had a chance to go through and select out some of my um, preferred short stories. Um, I, I worked with editor Norman Prentice on it. 
uh, some of my initial selections he he vetoed as they are maybe they may have been i wanted i wanted my collection to showcase a variety of voices mm. so i i kind of purposefully picked a very eclectic variety of stories that that explored different topics and um uh, and characters and, and settings because i wanted to be able to show people hey look i can i can write in the mystery genre and i can write in the in the comedy and i can write in the bizarre and surreal but i'm very very grateful that ultimately the editors kind of drew back a little bit and suggested you know let's let's give the collection a little bit more cohesion so he kind of pulled out some of the stranger selections and i went back and and molded some stories that ultimately i'm just I'm still so uh, proud of mm-hmm. or stories that are a little bit more of in general, they're, they're, they're the, they're the quieter type of, of horror in, individuals who, who are placed into um, strange circumstances or encounter strange behavior and, and what occurs beyond that. So after that, you went on to do last case at a baggage auction. Was that you? That was your standalone Oh uh, yeah, that's that one is is a novella, mm-hmm. and then I had my my debut novel, which which was after that, which grows wild. My novel was Doorways to the Dead Eye. So tell us a little bit about that one. Well, Doorways to the Dead Eye, it it was it was a story. T- it probably worked on it for about the course of of five years, which in between I was writing short stories and and doing publishing and, and editing work. So I, I didn't. You know, I didn't always have a chance to to write on a, on a regular basis, but it's less of horror and more of magic realism, mm-hmm. and the whole story revolves around the idea that after we die, our memory carries on, but your memory carries on only so long as there is somebody else who can remember you. Mm-hmm. Once there's nobody around, then you know the, the memory is non-existent. So in my book that. I took that to a very figurative level. So once an individual dies, they they still exist in in this in a realm, which they've they've gone through the dead eye into this. It's almost like a purgatory type of realm. Mm. So where memories are currently existing alongside um, reality. So all around us, we we are all around us. We are influenced by memories, which. You know, it, it, I kind of, I, I was, I tried to look at it from a little bit of a, of a philosophy that, you know, in modern era, we are influenced by the deeds and actions of those who came before us. We are influenced by the voices of media. We are influenced by our peers and we're influenced by conversations and, and we are influenced by things that maybe it's so subtle as just hearing a certain word from two strangers speaking in a conversation the next booth over at a diner. So with that, it's all of these legends and memories that are currently existing. They are whispering in our ears at all hours because they are whispering to tell of their own deeds and their own exploits in order to make their memories, their legacy stronger. So a lot of the book kind of had to deal with why is it that some legacies persevere over others? And so it's it's these memories that are constantly they're doing battle with their strengths and weaknesses that they are remembered for. So for individuals that, you know, they're they are remembered the strongest, they tend to have the most power in this realm of memories. 
and then they try to subjugate and they may subjugate others. And then once a person does not have any memory left, then essentially they, they encounter their second death when they are then thoroughly expunged from all existence. Um, all recollection of them, any, any note of their being is just, it's, it's essentially eaten up by, by the universe. So, and then the book, it, it's framed by, in the Depression era, 1930s. And during, um, during America, it was very common for the, you know, transportation was through the, the railways. So it was very common for individuals known as hobos who didn't have money, they didn't have a job. They would be part of the seasonal uh, labor force, that they would hop a train in order, in order to uh, work plucking apples in California. And then in the wintertime, they would need to go back over to Michigan and they would, they would get a job cutting ice hmm. or in, you know, in this, in the fall or the spring, they would need to take a, another train and, and ride down South to pick uh, cotton for the fields. So the book has to deal with the hobo who is traveling around on, on these trains during the era of the, of the depression. And in re in real life, hobos actually develop their own form of written communication, which are like um, hieroglyphics that you would find in, in the caves. Mm, and mm. so hobos develop this code of symbols as graffiti, and they would mark up houses, and they would mark up billboards, and they would mark on bridges what hobos could expect when they come, uh, future traveling hobos would expect when they came here. Mm -hmm. So there's an immense icon iconographic uh language of symbols whereas somebody would say you know if there's if they showed a doorway and the and the doorway was open it would mean that this is a welcoming community or if the doorway was shut it would mean you know this is a this is a closed community you're not wanted here mm. or they would have symbols for police beatings it was very common for individuals who were riding the rails if they went into a a, a tight-knit community all of a sudden they're a stranger and they're not wanted there, and and they would be told that they are not wanted there, and in no uncertain terms as uh, baseball bats. And so my main character, who has developed this understanding of of the hobo language, he begins to see there there's actually more of this language, and he reads into the language that there are magical words incorporated into it, and these are the magical words that gives him access into the doorway of memories. So he finds a way to cross back and forth between um, the realm of memories and the real world. And he sees how the memories affect the living mm -hmm. and how living affects the memories and kind of the, the social injustices that are being encountered on, on both sides of, of these realms. And essentially he, he has his own way of, of trying to right these wrongs and his, his love interest is, is killed early on in the book in real life, but then he has a chance to reconnect with her in, in the realm of the memories. And that's one of his driving forces is she was, you know, there was this, she was a runaway girl, a, a hobo when, and nobody cared about her. So he has to find a way to, to keep her memory living so that she will continue to reside there in, in this realm of memories. And then at the same time, he's battling, uh, you know, a variety of, of historic figures that I, I kind of subjectively turn turned evils, you know, a bit a bit random, as, mm -hmm. uh, who ultimately were, were protagonists or, or antagonists. But it all 
it all tied back into stories of American lore for centuries and centuries from the earliest colonization and, and beyond that to um, indigenous legends. That sounds really cool. <laughs> I'll just go catch that one. Uh, it's did my part to read. I need to read that. I, I should probably trim my uh, my elevator speech down a, a little bit. I, I tend to that's your that, that's your uh, the fact that you you run a you run, you run a run a publishing company is what you have to do. <laughs> it's your <laughs> <laughs> overly verbose times. Hey, no, it's, it's it's pushing the story. I love it. Um, talking about pushing stories, let's go for the final bloody good read. All right, my final choice, and I'm 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 still gonna jump back and tell you. I'm gonna tell you real fast. I had two runners up before I go into my third choice. Go for it. Um, I want to mention runners up choices number four and five. The Terror by Dan Simmons. Very good book. Which is the bleakest horror book, epic horror book I, I've ever read. Which kind of is a fictionalized account of, of the real life disasters of of two whaling or expeditionary um, ships up in the North Pole searching for the Northwest Passage. And then my my other alternate choice, which really hard not to take as one of the top three, was a, a very small novella titled Big Fish by Daniel Wallace. And there was a, a, a movie made off of this, um, which is, which is a, a beautiful movie that starred uh, uh, Ewan McGregor. Those, those are my, my two backup choices, Big Fish and The Terror. But I'm going to jump into my third selection, which is titled Spoon River Anthology by okay. Edgar Lee Masters. And this is actually a classic of American literature. And thinking back on this book, this is, this is actually, it's properly a book of poetry, mm. which personally I, I despise poetry. Okay. But this particular book, it is classified as poetry, but each of these poems are freehand verse. And they are essentially epitaphs and stories of ghosts in a cemetery in a small town in America. So each of these ghosts has a very brief tale of what it was during their life and then their experiences and relationships with the other ghosts in this in the story and each passage is only a page it's a page and it's so it's so beautifully wrought all the way through hmm. and i think back i read this when i was probably in elementary school and i don't think and i i didn't understand entirely what it was about back then except that i remember skimming through some of the stories and thinking Oh, I really like what this what this person has to say, or, or I appreciate what the hardships that they endured. Which I was a fan. My my younger brother was a big fan of the um, Little House on the Prairie, the mm-hmm. Laura Ingalls Wilder um, books and um, and series. And for some reason, when I was a, a child, I kind of likened this uh, to that, even though it really has no bearing whatsoever. But I think over the years, I have come back to this anthology of stories probably more times than any other book in my library. And I still, to this day, when I think I have no ideas for a story, um, you know, I, I'm going to open up Spoon River Anthology and I could turn to any page and just read these, the voices of the characters in this, in this book, because each one of these voices is so 
is so profound. Mm. And many of them, they take the, they take the role of the unreliable narrator because it may not be fact that they are expressing because they are kind of actually, I look back the way, the way that kind of one of the underlying um, thoughts for my, my novel that I had discussed was that a lot of the characters in this book, they, they speak how they want to be remembered. So it has less to do with reality, but it has a little bit more to do with their perceptions of reality or actions and things that they did. They did not understand the consequences of how that affected other their neighbors. So they may give their viewpoint on something magnificent. So they'll have judges in this book and the judge will expound on this brilliant political ruling that he made and how it, how it protected certain class of people and it, it rose up and it was this major landmark decision. Well, later on in the book, you're going to, you'll read a story of somebody who was, who was destroyed by that landmark ruling, you know, and, and how it affected them. And the stories are just filled with, they're filled with love and um, kind of growing of age experiences, mm. different cultures in the small town. Um, yeah, just, just something I cannot re- recommend it enough. Spoon River Anthology by Edgar Lee Masters. It was originally written um, back in, I think, 1915. So it's a little over a century old, but still just such um, compelling, meaningful, inspirational reading to this day. Awesome. And you've beaten John Everson <laughs> with, your, uh, with your five choices. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so take that, Brian Evanson. I one up you. <laughs> John, I'm sorry, John. Evanson, John Evanson. Brian. <laughs> That's fine. We're good to that one. <laughs> so, what are you working on at the moment? Is there anything you kind of any new novels or any short collections you're working on, or are you mostly focusing on titles coming out for Dark Moon? Yeah, I've actually I've got a few different uh, projects that I'm working on. I am the co-editor and creator of a series of horror classics along with anthologist Leslie S. Klinger. And this is a special publishing project that is in partnership with the Horror Writers Association and published through Sourcebooks, which is a, it's a huge, huge publisher, um, a global publisher. And we are reissuing classics of dark fiction that perhaps are not as well known today as they were a century ago. So novels that were were putting out there to say, you know, these are the works that although they may not be read as widely today, these are works that inspired the authors who we do read today. Mm. So we've been looking at books. So right now we have The Beetle by author Richard Marsh, um, Vafek, by William Beckford, The House on the Borderland by William Hope Hodgson, um, and a number of other um, volumes coming up, The Mummy, The Castle of Otranto. And for each of these volumes, we're adding annotations to kind of explain the context. We are adding in um, scholarly academic discussion questions so that these books have been used for book clubs and in classrooms. Um, I'm adding in suggested reading lists, biographies of, of the authors, and then each one is also opened up with an introduction by, by a noted author or individual in the, in the horror field 
such as Ramsey Campbell. He did the opening for House in the Borderland, um, who we just mentioned, and uh, Nick Pizzolatto, uh, who did the uh, who's in, who who wrote the True Detective series. Oh, cool. So naturally, he wrote the introduction for The King in Yellow because The King in Yellow was heavily influenced in the first season of that. So uh, this particular series of books, it's um, we have I have 12 volumes planned. Mm. So we have volumes going up through the year 2023. Jesus. And I'll probably be keeping it going um, even more so beyond that. We're, we're releasing four volumes a year. So that's that's one big project. And then I had mentioned I have my exploring dark short fiction series where I'm um, analyzing the individual short fiction work of authors. And I, um, Ramsey Campbell is the sixth volume of that. Um, I have two more volumes that I've already begun, and I have not yet announced the authors for that. But this is another series that I, I think by its its aggregate, it will have more and more value with more authors whose voices combined really kind of give a snapshot of, of where we are in horror literature today. Hmm. And this is a series that I, I hope to continue for many, many years to come. Awesome. On on that series, uh, I'm going to ask a really cheeky question. Who would you like to sure. work with? If you could pick any author, who would you go? Who, who would you like to showcase on that? Uh, Neil Gaiman. Oh, that's a good answer. <laughs> yeah, you know, essentially, I, I'd like to get you know I I I listed on my website, so it's not a secret. I listed the criteria of of what authors would have to meet mm. in order to be considered for this. And so it's it's authors who have been writing for decades, and they have been in, they're an influence, and they they have a voice that is spoken um, to a generation of, of people, you know, authors who are influential. And they have they have a, a large body of of well respected work. So to me, Neil Gaiman is is amazing. I mean, I I grew up with Stephen King. He was the first author I I ever read. Uh, naturally, I, I would love to do a, a volume on Stephen King. I, mm. I see that as unlikely to ever happen. <laughs> Pretty much as I see, Neil Gaiman would be uh, unlikely. But I like Neil Gaiman because he's not just horror, but he's fantasy. Mm. And so he's really done a lot to kind of broaden. This series of books is not, is not it specifically does not reference horror. And it, it references dark literature, mm. which to me incorporates fantasy it incorporates um, different types of speculative fiction and and quiet fiction, psychological, um, folklore, uh, magic realism, urban fantasy, the fantastique. Um, I wanted to kind of keep this as, as very uh, kind of a very broad idea, but he 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 would definitely be one at the, at the top of the list. And then I, I have a number of, of short listed authors and. Some of them I, I've already been been fortunate to work with, and some of them I'm I'm hoping to be able to have a chance to work with in, in the near future. I'd like to see that. I'd like to yeah, see the collection. <laughs> and then besides, then um, so besides the editing and, and publishing side, I also I personally continue to write, and I, and I like writing short stories. And um, I'm I'm working on hopefully I'd, I'd like to have a, a second collection put out within another year. And then I, I have ideas that I've I've started three separate novels, uh, each one in a, in a kind of a completely different genre. Although I, I've not gotten too far in, into any of them, I, I like to think of myself primarily. My primary goal is to be a, a writer and to be a better writer every day. Mm. And so the, the publishing side and the marketing side and the editing side, they're all 
projects that are that are passionate and I, and I love being part of the industry. But at the end of the day, uh, my you know I, my focus is on is on writing itself. Thank you so much for for joining us on the podcast. It's been really lovely talking to you. Great to have another insight from a different side of the uh, from the other side of the table as well. More the kind of the publishing side as you know, it's, it's good to look into that as well. So, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And well, how can people? And, and thank you. That's good. That's right. <laughs> thank you very much, Mark. And I, I appreciate your time and and having me as as a part of Bloody Good Reads podcast. How can people find you on the social medias? Well, I'm I'm pretty much on on just about every social media platform. I, I run two websites, so I have my personal author's website. It's my name, ericjgenard.com. And then I also run darkmoonbooks.com. Um, and then both both websites, of course, are there they have um, access links to each other. I have Twitter accounts, my my handle, my name, Eric J. Gennard. I'm also Twitter for Dark Moon Books. I'm on Goodreads. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I have a blog. Um, yeah, and probably any anything else there thereupon. It's you know <laughs> the biggest challenge is, is spelling my surname. So as long as it's spelled correctly, you should you should be able to to find me. Brilliant. And you can uh, you can find uh, Eric on the Bloody Good Breeds uh, followers list. So if you do want to find him, go find follow and everything you can do definitely definitely follow, follow all the all the advocates and supporters in in the indie horror writing community exactly um, no no better words <laughs> again thank you so much for for taking part today um to find me as always you can see find the podcast on bloody good reads over at twitter uh, you can find myself at snakebite horror where you can find updates on the Horrorcast, Franchise Players Podcast, and website uh, reviews and uh, bits of pieces on there. Uh, you can also catch me every fortnight on the State by Horrorcast. It's myself, Nana, and Marcus as we go through the world of horror, one film at a time with myself, some uh, Nile who doesn't like horror, and uh, Marcus who is just a little bit weird. Uh, you also got the Franchise Players Podcast. We're taking a slight break at the moment. We're looking at kind of restarting the podcast over in, in October, um, continue on with our Child's Play series. I know I've mentioned it several times before on the other podcast, but it will be back in October with um, Brighter Chucky, which is the next one on that one. So, yes, um, as always, thank you for listening to the podcast follow like subscribe um and a quick shout out to our sponsor as well which is uh, abominable books uh, abominable books at createjoy.com um they are an amazing little uh, subscription box you get a brand new book a second hand book and if you go for the higher tier you get some snacks and drinks and everything as well um and you can get 10 percent off of their uh, box with the code bloody good reads as well so do go and check them out uh, you can find any, any links to them on uh, below here on below the little blurb bit at the bottom of this podcast and you can find it over on Twitter and you can find it over on Instagram as well on that note I will say goodbye and we will see you next time